Section 3 of the History Teachers Magazine, Volume 1, Number 3, November 1909. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History Teachers Magazine, Volume 1, Number 3, November 1909. Section 3. The Use of Sources in Instruction in Government and Politics. By Charles A. Beard. Adjunct Professor of Politics in Columbus University. What Dr. Stubbs said many years ago about the difficulty of mastering the history of institutions applies with equal force to the mastery of present institutions, especially in actual operation. Perhaps, in a way, the student of government is more fortunately situated than the student of history, for he can use the laboratory method to some extent. He may attend primaries and caucuses, visit the state capitol or the city hall, take a place among the spectators in a police court watching the daily grind, or observe the selectman, perhaps a drug clerk, superintend the construction of a town highway. But in the classroom, instruction in government and politics must perforce deal largely with abstractions. The historians, long ago recognizing the vice of unreality which attended them like a ghost that would not be downed, cast about for some new method that would give more firmness and life to their instruction. In their search, they came upon the sources, and instead of listening always to the voice of Green or Stubbs, they stopped to hear the voices of the kings, monks, warriors, and lawyers who helped make the history of which Green and Stubbs wrote. The result, as all the world knows, has been marvelous. It has brought more vividness and solidity to historical instruction. It has done more. The very method itself, in the hands of skilled workers, has become a discipline of the highest value. Whoever doubts it should read Professor Fling's article in the first issue of this magazine. Lawyers likewise have discovered the same difficulties which the teachers of history encountered, and, flinging away Blackstone in the textbooks, they have sought refuge in the sources alone. Perhaps they have gone too far with the case system. In fact, a reaction seems imminent at this moment, but the commentators will never recover their former sway. Strange to say, teachers of government and politics have not yet made any widespread use of the methods that have been found so effective in the hands of other students of institutions, and yet in quantity, variety, and interest, the sources available for their work are practically unlimited. One of the most important groups of materials, the government publications, can be had for the asking, and our wastebaskets are filled with the examples of another group, the fugitive literature of party politics. Acres of diamonds have been at our door, but our instruction in government and politics wears, in general, such a barren aspect that keen-sighted students are aware of its unreality, and slow-switted ones find no delight or profit in it. No word in our curriculum suggests such innocuous futility as civics, and yet we are preparing citizens for service in a democracy. But to turn from preachments to some practical advice, which, I take it, is what the editor wanted when he asked me to do this article. The source materials for government and politics fall readily into four groups. 1. There are, first, the autobiographies, memoirs, and writings of statesmen, lawyers, legislators, judges, street-cleaning commissioners, police superintendents, 
and other persons who have actually conducted some branch of our government. These books, it is true, are often written to glorify the authors, but the solemn presentation of the unvarnished truth was not always the purpose of the medieval monk whose chronicle is studied with such zeal as a source. What could be more charming or illuminating than Senator Hoare's memoirs, Sherman's recollections, Blaine's story of his service in Congress, or Benton's view of things? Were there space at my disposal, I could fill this magazine with the topics on which I have secured informing notes from Hoare's work. There are wit and humor and reality on almost every page. I suspect, and whisper it here under breath, that a student who reads it will know more about the federal government than one who devotes his time to memorizing the sacred constitution, so prayerfully drafted by the fathers. Two, in the second group, I would place the government publications, state and federal and municipal. Now I am aware that this calls up in the minds of many readers visions of the long rows of repulsive volumes which cumber our library shelves, and I know that government reports all look alike to careless observers. They are not, however. Even the congressional record has pages glistening with information on the inner workings of Congress and the play of interests in lawmaking. It takes some courage for the busy teacher to start on that formidable monument to the capacity of the government printing office. But, as Professor Reinch has pointed out in the preface to his splendid collection of materials on the federal government, the process of studying the sources, while irksome at the beginning, soon has the exhilarating effect on the mind that brisk physical exercise has on the body. Only one who has turned from a vest pocket manual of pre-digested civics to the apparently cold and barren waste of the congressional record can know the exhilaration of the experiment. In the debates of the conventions in which our state constitutions are framed, we can find materials which will illuminate every part of our commonwealth government. Then there are the executive messages and inaugurals, voluminous and forbidding, but even a few hours over them with pen in hand and a plentiful supply of page markers will yield fruit never dreamed of by the teacher who has exhausted his ingenuity on inventing a table that will show graphically what powers are coordinate, exclusive, and reserved in our constitutional system. Then there are the departmental reports. I have a shelf full for the years 1908 to 09, just in front of my working table. They give a lot of precise information on the state of the civil service, the organization of the army and navy, the work of the Bureau of Corporations, the investigations of the Department of Labor, and the like, which I must have to give correctness and precision to my instruction in matters of state and federal administration. Then they are indispensable for reference. I am constantly having trouble in remembering whether the Pension Bureau is a bureau or a division, or is in the War Department, where it would seem to belong, or the Department of Commerce and Labor, or somewhere else. It really does not matter so much, for doubtless most of our best citizens do not know where it is, especially since under our system of indirect taxation they don't feel its hands in their pockets. Finally, there are Supreme Court decisions. Here, laymen must beware, for the lawyers have forbidden us to come in. Only one who has mastered the mysteries of real property and torts, so they would have us believe, can understand the mysteries of direct taxation as defined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, we must not take the lawyers too seriously, but we must master the elements of law and also learn how to get the point of a case. 
discover the facts and separate the necessary reasoning from the opener. Certainly no student of American government has any business teaching the subject unless he has read and understood many of the greatest decisions of the august tribunal that presides over our political destinies. 3. A third group of materials embraces state and federal laws. How many readers of this article have ever seen in one spot the yearly output of his state legislature or Congress? How many readers who have discussed congressional appropriations have ever seen an appropriation bill or part of one? How many readers who have discussed tariff and finance have ever seen a real live tariff bill reposing in the pages of the statutes of the United States? I always take Ash's edition of the Charter of New York City, a portly volume of about a thousand pages, into my classroom and perform before the eyes of the students the experiment of running through the chief titles. It helps to keep them modest in their estimate of their knowledge of our city government, and it is a standing apology for the innumerable question which I failed to answer. I may mention also in leaving this group the state election law which can be secured readily from the Secretary of the Commonwealth and should be always in hand. 4. The fourth group includes the literature of current and party politics, vast, fugitive, here today and gone tomorrow, but of an importance never imagined by students who have staked their hopes on understanding our system by a study of the Federalist. Party platforms, national, state, and local, campaign textbooks, campaign speeches, broadsides, cartoons, posters, and handbills, pamphlets published by partisan and nonpartisan associations, interviews in the press, articles in magazines, and a thousand other devices by which political issues are raised and public consciousness aroused, ought to be watched with close scrutiny by the teacher of government faithful to his calling. A collection of ballots should be made showing what the voter has to do on election day, and copies of instructions to voters should be filed away. A hundred other things will be suggested at once to the alert teacher, so that I need not continue the catalog, but will close the general appeal back to the sources. End of section 3